Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. I've been away for a while. I've missed you. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 19. As you're opening John chapter 19, we read it already this morning, Tyler did for us, but just as a reminder, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so that's why we are opening our Bibles to John chapter 19 this morning. We were away to uh, California and New Jersey, and it is great to be back with you. We are coming down to the end of our study of the Gospel of John, and we're approaching the most important, the saddest, and the most glorious event in all of human history, the crucifixion of our King. I'm going to read the first 19 verses of John chapter 19, and then we'll work our way through this text. Uh, We live in an age of distractions. And I pray that today we can give our attention to this word that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write for us. So let's do the work to focus our hearts and our minds on this passage, on the reading of his holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word. Listen to John chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat 
at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Lord, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. And no one is hidden from its sight. But we are all laid naked and exposed to him to whom we must give an account. That's what your word does. So Lord, I pray this morning that you would take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and you would use it to wound us and to heal us, to defend us, to illuminate to our minds who we truly are in light of you, to make us more like Christ, to bring to repentance anybody that does not know Jesus in here and to enliven, to warm our affections for Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help me explain this text to these people faithfully. And I pray that you'd do this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In these 16 verses, I see three ironic statements And that's how I want to frame our work, our walk through this passage this morning, by looking at three ironic statements that I hope will help us understand what's going on in this scene. In fact, that's kind of one of John's tools that he uses all throughout his gospel. He uses irony to bring out some truth. He uses a statement by some unbelievers or Jewish officials or some pagan ruler to actually shine light on the truth of who Christ is. So here are these three ironic statements that I hope will help us understand this text and we'll work back through them. First is, behold the man. What does that mean, behold the man? Secondly, we have a law. We have a law, the Jewish leaders cried out to Pilate. And then thirdly, at the end, before he handed him over to be crucified, behold your king. So three ironic statements, behold the man, we have a law, and behold your king. First, let's look at this phrase, behold the man. The first five verses of John chapter 19, we see in the first verse that Pilate took Jesus out and flogged him, and then these these soldiers are mocking Jesus. They've twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and mockingly they arrayed him in a purple robe. This was all just a mockery of Jesus in his divinity. They came up to him, these soldiers who had just flogged him and put this crown on his head, and he's bleeding, and he's been beaten. And they say mockingly to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, they struck him with their hands. Think of the irony. Think of the, 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 the gravity of that, that the very ones that Jesus, the Creator, created, he now is allowing them to strike him with their hands. And then Pilate in verse 4 goes out again. It's a continuation of the second half of John chapter 18 in this this scene of Jesus before Pilate. 
And he says to the religious leaders, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Pilate really is trying to distance himself from this. He doesn't want any trouble. Pilate is kind of like a regional governor over Israel, which was under the captivity of Rome. And Pilate had to answer to Caesar, the the emperor in Rome. And, And part of Pilate's burden here, part of his anxiety, is that he wants everything to go well in the territory that he, as this Roman governor, has been put in charge of. And so he's nervous about any insurrection. He's nervous about civil unrest. And it would be a blight on his leadership record if the people that he was supposed to be keeping down were causing trouble. And he really doesn't want any trouble. He doesn't want to mess with this. You can tell that he just kind of wants to get this off of his plate. And he tells the Jewish leaders, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, and here's the irony. Pilate says to these people with Jesus, he says, behold, the man. So what is Pilate getting at there? He's basically saying, look, why are you Jewish leaders so worried about this guy? Look at him. He's just a man. How ironic. Pilate says, behold, the man, he's saying he's nothing to be worried about. He's nothing dangerous. He's just a man. And here's the irony is that, yes, Jesus is truly man, but also truly God. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes the necessity that Jesus would be just a man. Listen to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. And while we were, Jennifer and I were away in New Jersey, we heard a a man preach on this text, and I've thought this before, and I thought it again after he preached beautifully on this text, that this is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament to understand who Christ is. Hebrews chapter 2, verse starting in verse 10, it says, for it was fitting that he, that's referring to God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, in other words, bringing people to salvation, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So what is the writer of Hebrews saying there? He's saying that God found it fitting, determined it to be so, that in order to accomplish the salvation of his people, that he had to make the founder of their salvation, which is Christ, perfect through suffering. So what does that mean, that Jesus had to be made perfect through suffering? Well, we know what it can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus in any way needed to be made, you know, go from sinful to perfect, as if there's some sin in Jesus. That certainly isn't the case, because we know that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin, and he is the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's the Alpha and the Omega. There's no lack in Jesus at all. But Jesus, in his godness, had to become truly human. And so what the writer of Hebrews, I think, is saying here is that Jesus had to be made perfect, actually had to be made a human being that in time would actually obey God perfectly in his life and die a sacrificial death for us on the cross, it actually had to happen. It had to be made so. And Jesus does this. 
And here Pilate is saying, behold this man in a mocking way. And Hebrews 2 is saying here, similarly, behold this man, who this God-man who's become man for you. Verse 11, that writer of Hebrews goes on, back to Hebrews chapter 2. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So God becomes a man and identifies with us. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that's speaking of God the Son, who's became a man, who identifies with us, and he's not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. Now I know you stayed up late watching college football, but that ought to make your heart sing. Jesus who created everything, who has no beginning, no end, who is the all-powerful king of the universe, came and became a man so that he could call you and me and all those that would trust in him his brothers and sisters. Saying, verse 12, and this is quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. He comes to tell us about his father. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, we're weak and feeble people, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. What an irony that the creator of all things would destroy his enemy not through a kind of act of sort of obvious power, but through the humility of the glory of the suffering of humanity and the cross. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's us. That's those who will believe in him. It's not referring to ethnic Jews. It's referring to those who have the faith of Abraham in God. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers, that's Christians, you and me, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation. There's that word again, that beautiful word, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What does that mean, that Jesus made propitiation? It means that he lived a perfect life as a real man, And he became a sacrifice, a substitute on the cross. And so what is Jesus doing on the cross according to that beautiful, all-important word, propitiation? He's not merely laying down his life as a sacrifice, as as an example of his love or an example of servant leadership. But he's laying down his life on the cross to bear, to take, to absorb, to satisfy The judgment of God, the wrath of God, the holiness of God for the sins of his people. And he propitiates it. He takes it all. He removes it. He extinguishes it. He drinks it dry, so to speak. And he doesn't just take away the punishment and become our substitute for our punishment. He takes the sin. He takes the punishment. And he gives us... He imputes to us His righteousness. And so in this one all-important word, propitiation, we see really the gospel in just one word. 
that Jesus bears our sin. He takes our sin and we get his righteousness. It's this double exchange. And friends, that's what it means to be a Christian, to believe that you cannot atone for your sin in and of yourself. Your righteousness will fail you. But Jesus has bore the wrath for your sin and he has given you his righteousness. And essentially, the, the ground zero of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian is to trust not in your righteousness, not in your ability to make up for your wrongdoing, but in what Jesus has done for you and his righteousness, that you will stand before the Lord someday with your sin forgiven and Jesus' righteousness covering you. That's what it means to trust in Jesus. And that's what Jesus has done on the cross for his people. Verse 18 of Hebrews 2, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so here he is, this man, this God, but yet truly man. And here's this first irony. Pilate says, behold, what can he do? But Jesus, it says according to Hebrews 2, couldn't do anything unless it was fitting that he became a man, a true man, who bore the wrath of God. Friends, here's the truth that I want you to see in this first irony, is that Jesus is our high priest he is the God who became man. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He knows our frame. He identifies with us. He comes to us. He remembers that we are dust. He says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Here, friends, here's my question. Do you know that Jesus has come to identify with you, to understand you, to take your place. Behold the man who will take your place if you will trust in him. The second irony, we have a law. We have a law. Verse 6, so the chief priests, the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. So the Jews are wanting this Roman governor to crucify him because they're threatened by Jesus' authority. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Again, he says that's the second time he said that. And the Jews answered him, verse 7, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. So what's going on here? Well, the first charge that the Jews had against Jesus was that he was sort of you know, rebelling against Caesar. So their first accusation against Jesus is that it's a kind of political accusation that you need to take care of this guy for us because he's causing problems for you. So notice, just get in the scene. You have these Jewish leaders who are under Roman captivity and they're going to this Roman governor and they're basically sort of selling out one of their own people, Jesus, by saying he's a rabble-rouser He's sort of organizing an insurrection. He wants to overthrow Caesar, and so take care of him. They're wanting, they're using that appeal to cause Pilate to do their dirty work for them. And they sense that the argument is not really gaining ground with Pilate because basically he's saying, I don't see anything wrong here. I find no guilt in him. So they go from this political accusation, then they bring it into the arena of their own law, and they say, okay, well, well we have a law. And why would that have any sway with Pilate because one of the things that the Roman governors did was when they would capture a territory or a people, 
they would basically kind of let them still live according to their law so long as they paid their taxes to Rome and didn't sort of cause any trouble. And so now the Jewish leaders are saying, well, okay, but okay, if you're not going to crucify him for rising up against Caesar, then he's causing problems for us. And so he's causing basically instability amongst one of the peoples that you've captured, us. And we have this law, and our law sort of still, in a sense, has authority in our land. And so what's this law? This law is that he's blaspheming. He's saying that he's the son of God. And in a sense, they're referring to Leviticus, where it says that anybody that calls himself the son of God should be put to death. And that was their charge against Jesus. And then in verse 8, Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. What's going on there? I don't think that anything is really going on in Pilate's heart right now, but he's just sort of afraid that maybe this guy's some sort of, you know, this really is a problem. And I think Pilate was afraid, not so much divinely of Jesus' true authority, but of his own political position. He was just getting more frustrated that this was causing problems in his district. And so he's afraid for his leadership position in a sense. And he enters into the headquarters again and says to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not, listen to this, just think about this conversation. That you're looking in the face of God in the flesh. And this is what Pilate says, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. A couple things on this. Just notice that Jesus reaffirms what we know to be true throughout the whole Bible is that everything happens under the sovereign authority of God. Even though it seems like in the natural Pilate is in control. Jesus reminds Pilate, even though he doesn't realize it, that everything that's happening, even his conscious decisions, are part of God's ultimate plan to bring Jesus to this point of the cross. And then he says to him, you've delivered over me. The one who's delivered me over to you has the greater sin. I don't have time to get deep into this, but it's interesting that Jesus sort of mentions that there's levels or degrees of culpability. So in other words, Judas or Caiaphas, the high priest, who delivered him over, in a sense is more culpable than Pilate, who was not active in this, but just sort of had this land in his lap. And Jesus is taking authority, reminding Pilate of who has authority, even in the midst of the situation, that in the natural, seems like Pilate has all the authority. But here's the ironic statement. The ironic statement is in verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law. We have a law. They felt their case was slipping away. Pilate wasn't convinced. So they appealed to their Old Testament law. And how ironic. Because the truth is, is that Old Testament law refers specifically, it was meant to point them to the one who would fulfill the law for them. Listen to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. Now listen to how Paul interprets this Old Testament law and what it says about who Christ is. Verse 19, Romans 3. Now we know, and remember, the first three chapters of Romans are basically an indictment of all humanity. Paul is saying that the Gentiles are guilty, 
because they've rejected God. They can see creation and they shake their fist at God. They suppress the truth. The Jews are guilty. They have the written special revelation of God, the Old Testament, and they've rejected God. So basically, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 3 is that we are all equally guilty at the foot of the cross. Everybody needs Jesus. The law is convicted everybody, whether the law is natural or specific. We are guilty. And here's Paul's summation of the problem in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That's both Jew and Gentile. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law that, think about the irony here, this law that these Jewish leaders are trying to find a technicality in to get rid of this problem of Jesus is the very law that indicts them completely. Verse 21, but now, but now, this is what this law is talking about, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So in other words, this whole Old Testament, this whole law of the Old Testament that indicts humanity and says that none of us can make ourselves right with God will shine the light on our sin, but it can never finally and fully cure our sin. Paul goes on to say in verse 22, but the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a, there's that word again, a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because His divine forbearance, in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the irony. It's like they're rummaging through this huge bag and they're pulling out one little thing and they're saying, how oh, we're going to use this against Jesus. When in reality, the actual message of all of that law indicts all of us and is meant to point us away from ourselves to the one who fulfills the law for us. Think of the irony here. Think of Jesus even listening to them appealing to the law, they are trying to accuse him with the law when the law was sent to accuse us and to push us to him. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 4. Listen to this. For since the law, this Old Testament law that the Jewish leaders are appealing to, to be a kind of technicality, to get Pilate to crucify Jesus. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So in other words, this law can't, you can't be saved by this law. You can't can't be made righteous by this law. This law is only meant to, to indict you. And now they're using it to indict Jesus wrongly. Verse 2 of Hebrews 10, Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. 
And so here they are, they're, they're, they're looking at this law, which is just a shadow. It's really just meant to be a light to point them to their need for somebody who will finally obey for them because we can't obey. And they use it as a sword to leverage Pilate to put Jesus to death. Friends, here's this truth that I want us to see about this irony of we have the laws. Where, 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 where is our hope? Because how do we connect with this? How do we say, okay, what does this have to do with me? Friends, we too look for righteousness, for self-righteousness, and little technicalities of areas where we think that we are obeying. And we like to say, this is what makes me right. This is what exonerates me. This is what fulfills me. This is where my righteousness lies and my ability to do this. And even Christians who are trusting in Christ can suffer from a kind of gospel amnesia. And they forget, we forget that we are only hope before a holy God is Christ's righteousness, not ours. Friends, where's your hope? is the question when we look at this irony of these Jewish leaders so ironically, so sadly, using this law wrongly to to make Jesus guilty when the law is meant to make us guilty so that we would run to Jesus. And the third irony we see in the last few verses, 12 through 16, This irony of behold your king. Let's pick up in verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Boy, you can just see the tension. Pilate just, man, he wants this off his plate. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. So they, they, you know, it's like they've swung back and forth. They wanted, their first charge was insurrection against Caesar. Didn't seem like Pilate was, you know, going for that. Then they went to their law. doesn't seem like Pilate has really bought that either. And so now they're back on this insurrection thing. But they're going to personally kind of make Pilate feel insecure in his status. So they say to Pilate, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And this particular Caesar, I think his name was Tiberius, who was reigning during the time of Pilate, was known to be a very distrustful man that was very suspicious of his governors. And Pilate certainly knew that, and he wanted to keep his position. So he basically, Pilate was very anxious to just quell any sort of uh, uh, civil unrest. And so the Jews say to him, if you release this man, you're not a friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that's the kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in Pilate. He says in verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Think about that. Here's a human sitting, every word is important, sitting in the judgment seat over Jesus. Verse 14, now it was the day of the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Now here's this irony. It's the day of the preparation of the Passover the day that they would remember the exodus from Egypt when they would slaughter the lamb and they would put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their, of their homes and the angel of God's judgment would pass over the homes where he saw the blood of the lamb applied. And notice the, notice the juxtaposition of the humility of the slain lamb, preparation of the Passover, 
and the mocking Jews, mocking Pilate, who says, Behold your king. He says that in a derisive way, a mocking way. Here's the irony, friends. These Jews, see, they charged Jesus with being a king because he wasn't telling them that they wanted to hear. He wasn't telling him that he came primarily to overthrow Rome here and now. He was coming to overthrow a greater enemy, enemy than temporal Rome. He was coming to overthrow their sin and unrighteousness so that they could be with him forever. But they wanted an immediate king, an immediate rescue. And so here, the irony is, is that they wanted a king, but their true king that would lead them into an everlasting kingdom, they completely missed. Because he came first as a lamb, and ultimately will come again as a lion, as a king over all. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though, speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he's completely God. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He, this king, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do verses 9, 10, and 11 describe? They describe a king. A king. And so here, in this great irony, Pilate says to these Jews, Behold this man. What can he do? Well, he's this man who's identified with his people so that he could stand in their place. Oh, but we have this law. This law, so we're going we're gonna to try and accuse him. We're going to try and make ourselves feel righteous by this law. But no, actually the irony is, is that the law accuses us and we need this man to stand in our place for this law, to satisfy this law. But we don't just need a lamb. We don't just need a substitute. We need a, we need a king who will rule over us and defeat our enemies forever. Behold your king. Friends, the final question is, where's your, where's your allegiance Here's this sad statement that the Jews make, really just out of political expediency. They don't really mean this. They're just saying this for the sake of Pilate not getting upset at them. In verse 15, one of the saddest statements in all of John's gospel, we have no king but Caesar. What a sad thing to say. What a terrible way to live in culture. Friends, our only king is Christ. The man, the man who is flogged, the man who is beaten, the man who we'll read about next week is crucified, the man who fulfilled the law, the king who came as a lamb, but is coming back as the sovereign and is now the sovereign over all. Who is your 
king. Let me pray. Lord, we want to see Jesus rightly. If we can see him in all of his glory, in all of his suffering, in all of his obedience, in all of his lordship, then we will be changed. Lord, as we sing a song of response, as we pray, as we repent, as we turn afresh to you, may you do what only you can do. Lord, if there's people in this room who don't know you, maybe they just wanted a, a life coach, somebody that could help them with principles to navigate through their life better. Lord, may you, may you free them from that anemic view of Christ. And may you show them the man who fulfilled the law, who is their king. Lord, for Christians who are tempted to bow our knee to Caesars of our day, may we behold a man who alone fulfilled the law, who is our triumphant king. May we pledge our allegiance to him afresh. May we trust in his lordship wherever he takes us, because he is a good and faithful king. And Lord, may we worship you rightly in response to this passage. For your glory and our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.